You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back to an episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor and joining me is Mike. Hello, everybody. And this episode is more of a return to the norm for us. You know, the past episode, we were out in the field. We were trying out new field recording gear, which we're still going to keep improving on. And this time, we're going to have a bit of a segment of the news. And then at the end of the episode, we have a very special interview that I hope you'll stay tuned for. Um, we are going to interview Sunny View, who is the former CEO of Misfit. Misfit made wearables that sold to Fossil Group last year. And... Um, you know, he he was the co-founder with John Scully, and so we get to hear John Scully's story in the mix, and it's uh, – at least I think we do. And it's a good interview. It's an interesting thing he's doing now, so we'll get to that. But first, I want to let you know that if you haven't joined Stitcher Premium yet, now is the perfect time. Stitcher Premium gets you completely ad-free episodes of hundreds of shows like Comedy Bang Bang, WTF with Mark Marone, and How Did This Get Made? You also get 21,000 hours of exclusive content. New exclusive originals like Marvel's Wolverine and Issa Rae's Fruit are launching every week for Stitcher Premium members. If you love podcasts, you're missing out. When you listen to ad-free episodes in Stitcher Premium, your favorite podcasters get paid. Help support your favorite shows and join Stitcher Premium today. For a free month of listening, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code APPLE. Mike, we've talked a lot about Foxconn. Yep. And we've talked a lot about Foxconn and, you know, how they go about producing the iPhone, about the different vagaries of troubles that they've had with uh, trying trying to keep workers in good shape and good condition as they produce the iPhone or produce other things for Apple. And one of the stories that we had a lot too long ago was about Foxconn's move to the Wisconsin plant. Yep. Now, uh, with the Wisconsin thing, we started off saying they weren't going to produce parts for the iPhone in Wisconsin, and then we've come around to saying that they we think they are. Well, not exactly. There, there's a possibility that they're going to be producing iPhone screens in Wisconsin, which stems from reports saying that to keep Foxconn's costs down, they're shifting from large screen televisions because they they don't have a supply chain that can deliver the screens to another facility for assembly to smaller format screens like for tablets and smartphones. And one of the Nikkei's sources said that they're going to try and get Apple's business for the iPhone, and they're going to make screens that are used in iPhones. But there's that's a possibility, but I don't think it's a hugely strong one. It, they would have to convince Apple that they would want to use the, Fox, the Sharp screens, because Fox kind of owns Sharp. They would have to convince Apple to use the Sharp screens in the next generation of iPhones, and it does not appear that Apple is doing so. It looks like Apple's turned to Samsung and LG for that. Right. And they would have to have them shipped at present to China. Which is sort of backwards. Which is Yeah, which is kind of a backwards deal, which Apple has said before. Apple has said that, well, we manufacture iPhones in China because all of the parts for the iPhones are being made in China. It's it's a supply right. chain efficiency issue. Adding a whole other transatlantic shipping adds cost, customs, adds delay. And you can account for the delay if you produce things on a long enough timeline, but even so, you, you can't overcome that that's a cost. Right. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? No, yeah, well, not at present. It, it's it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting idea. I'm I'm certain that Foxconn is going to try and get Apple's business for screens. I just don't think Apple's going to bite. Yeah. So th- this is an interesting kind of push pull thing, right? We we saw last year the graphics manufacturer that had sold in graphics chips and to uh, to Apple mm-hmm. at the mercy of Apple canceling orders or saying we're simply going to make our own now, and them having to to basically go out of business or find a buyer, right? When 60% of your customers or more are Apple and Apple changes their mind, 
you're in a bad spot. And more recently, it's been happening to Dialogue Semiconductor with thoughts that Apple's shifting to an, an internally devised power management chip. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of a very double-edged sword. You love when Apple is your customer because they're going to place a lot of orders and you can count on a lot of orders. At the same time, when that source turns off, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so Foxconn is, is trying to do something about this to sort of balance their risk, right? Foxconn is starting an IPO for its for basically for its its Internet of Things group, for its home automation group. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to develop another source of revenue and not quite be so stuck with Apple's orders for whatever they need manufactured. And they're also fully aware that there's other companies waiting in the wings like Wistron and a couple other manufacturers that could take this business from Foxconn if things don't go well. So it, it seems wise that Foxconn is doing this. I, I don't think that this signifies anything about its arrangement with Apple or any f- immediate fear that Apple's going to bail. But Foxconn's fortunes are, are greatly tied to Apple's orders. And it wasn't always so, but but it has been for many years now. And so for them to produce a um, – this is their called the, the Foxconn Industrial Internet, which is their manufacturing arm for things like servers and, as you said, IoT accessories. Mm-hmm. Uh, IoT is kind of a broad space. Is that are we sure that means home IoT accessories, or can that be more broadly? Uh... I, I it's hard to tell from the original reporting, and Foxconn isn't really being very forthcoming with what exactly they're going to produce under the new venture with the IPO. But it appears, based on their existing product portfolio, that it goes all the way down from light bulbs to industrial automation, like robot arms and things of that nature. Okay. I mean, you know, we, we talk about home lighting with bulbs and stuff, but there's a whole realm of, of things like factory lighting and making oh, sure. your, your plants and office buildings more efficient. So it's not outside the, the scope here. And they're aiming at what looks like a $4.3 billion IPO for this. Yeah. yeah I, it's just, the thing is, is this is... Of the things we cover, this is actually among the more straightforward. This is Foxconn taking money that they have and putting into the venture, generating more money from an IPO, and trying to diversify itself so it it doesn't have Apple's Damocles sword hanging over its head. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's it's one of those things that we like to watch because as suppliers change and as this changing landscape for suppliers happens, it reflects on what's going to happen in the whole space, not just what happens for Apple, but what happens for the whole category. You know, uh, th- these things, everyone gets a chance at going up or down and things like that. And I, I was looking at, uh, did you see Lenovo's numbers came out? I, I saw that. I haven't looked at them too closely yet. Um, they they aren't great numbers. They they're they're up on. Uh, they're, they're, uh, I, I'm going to get this wrong, I know, but it's there's something like up on profit by something like 10% and down year on year for revenues, and um, their their phone division is completely tanked. Well, that's the interesting thing about a lot of this is Apple holds a, a small market share, but the but a large amount of the profits in the industry, the, the far and away the most amount of profit in the industry. Mm-hmm. And that's good and bad at the same time. People say, well, Apple needs to make a, a $300 Mac or they need to make a $200 iPhone. And, but the problem is, is these companies that are chasing the $300 computers and the $200 phones are dealing with situations like this where they, they have these gangbuster sales, but it's not helping them that much in the long run. Right. So I'm going to correct myself here since, since I have the sure. opportunity. Um, 69% down in net income. So they are they are down to thirty three million in three months ending in March, and and part of this is being said is that they're having difficulties with rising expenses. Sales did increase by eleven percent to uh, ten point six billion, 
which was better than expectations. They projected $9.8 billion. And this is the first double-digit percentage increase since 2015. Uh, they are having great difficulties with the phone. The phone business is is in the toilet for them, basically. And they keep trying to push back the deadline to turn around the smartphone business, which is kind of a mix of Lenovo and Moto branded products. Motorola for the U.S., North America. Uh, Lenovo for uh, China, rest of the world kind of stuff. And they they merged the mobile and PC business under one chief operating officer to try and, and build the company's presence and you know, make it work. Uh, they're counting on a turnaround kicking in by early 2019. So they're very happy that they resumed double-digit revenue sure. growth. They think that's amazing for them, that this is the turnaround sign. But I am... I my my beef with Motorola and with Lenovo as a whole for the the phone business is this. They they promised a couple of years ago that they would ship Moto E and Moto G and and phones like that, the second gen Moto E, they promised was going to stay up to date with stock Android releases and that they were going to keep it as stock as possible, that they were not going to add in interface tweaks and rearrange stuff, that they were just going to keep it as as bare bones AOSP as possible so that they didn't have to modify anything and could ship updates in parity with what Google ships for Nexus and Pixel. Mm-hmm. And they lie. Yeah, they didn't do that. Uh, they lie. They're trying to occupy a really uncomfortable spot for affordable phones with standard Google operating systems, and no one has mastered that. Well, the question is, do you need to ship a a really, really budget phone? And the answer is yes, for customers like TrackPhone sure. and, and all of TrackPhone's MVNOs. But, and, and that's what the G fulfilled. The E was the next level up from that and was also somewhat affordable. And, and that filled in a, a good spot in the market, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you can go up as high as 300 bucks because then you start creeping into Pixel territory where you might as well have a Pixel. But if if you have these phones, how hard is it to put AOSP on them and then ship that as an update? Uh, yeah. And in, in years past, the answer has been very hard because in the U.S., you had to get all of the U.S. updates certified by the carriers, which was abominably slow. And you always said, why am I going to this effort to try and update old phones when I could just try and push out new phones? But... This is the thing is that – so if you want to stay up to date with an OS release, you, you can't buy one from Samsung and expect any kind of long-term support. You can't buy one from LG and expect any kind of long-term support. You can buy one from Google and get support for about two years. Yep. That's what it looks mm-hmm. like. If you're Apple, your phones are supported for more or less four years. Uh, yeah, I'll go with that. Historically. Sure. And – you know, it's not that there's a guarantee Apple doesn't explicitly tell you your phones will be supported for four years. No, but historically going on, we can see that the phones hang around for about four years from the time that they're introduced in terms of support for updates. And no one quite fills that in, in the Android market. And Motorola made that promise like they were going to and then botched it. And I still believe that if they were able to pull that off, if they were able to carve out that space and say, you can buy a phone from Google or you can buy a phone from us. And in either case, you can feel comfortable that your phone is going to be supported for N number of years or for N number of updates. That would be reasonable. And that would be a space that would be interesting. Samsung hasn't even done that. No, they haven't. Because the the economies of it are, why are they developing AOSP for old phones? Why don't they just go ahead and sell you a new phone? And it's 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 a sort of a perverse kind of incentive. It, here's the thing with Android, and you know this is a this is a controversial opinion being that's on the Apple Insider podcast. I, I think that the 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 engineering effort to maintain Android and to make it as widely open as it is 
is massive and worthy of comment. But where it falls down is when you say to the vendor, hey, do what you want with it. And, you know, if you're going to provide security updates, hey, that's great. But if you don't, hey, we're not going to come down on you. That's where it breaks down for me. See, I feel like a healthy Android ecosystem leads to good competition for Apple. I think it does too. And and that only makes Apple strong. I agree. The Because it means that Apple has to keep trying. And, and they do. The lack of that kind of competition means things go by the wayside. Sure. And we talk about those things. We talk about those concerns where we feel that things have been maybe ignored or neglected a little bit. And the the interesting thing is that with the way that Android 7, Android 8, and now Android 9 have been re-architected and things moved around, it is easier than ever for a, a phone provider to be able to keep things up to date, to be able to not have to make customizations that then migrate back into core applications, but to be able to apply them more modularly. So there's almost less of an excuse for not being able to do this. I am I am disappointed, Moto. I am. I am disappointed. Now, Mike, we've reviewed, you and I and, and some of the other guys, Andrew, people like that on staff, have reviewed these mesh Wi-Fi systems. Yes. And I'm going to ask you some questions about them in just one moment. First, I need to go ahead and make sure everyone knows something very, very important. The Apple Insider Podcast is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Whether you want to learn something new or just sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. If you ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could do that, with Udemy, you can. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, Udemy has something for everyone. While other online learning companies charge hundreds of dollars per class, Udemy courses start at $11.99. Plus, each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere, or visit ude.my slash appleinsider today. That's www.ude.my slash appleinsider. Now, Mike, among all of these Wi-Fi routers, and, and they typically come in, in you know batches of three mm-hmm. nodes, right? There's a, a main base station that connects to the internet, and then there are two nodes that spread the signal and, and act as the backhaul to redistribute the signal back to the main router. Right. That's a lot of radio going on. It is. I mean, that's a whole lot of radio going mm-hmm. on. Lordy. So should I be concerned about all this radio? No. And I'm going to put an asterisk next to that. The reason why no is because there is nothing on this planet that is zero risk. Absolutely nothing. Sitting in this chair, there is a non-zero risk that is going to collapse and I'm going to have a piece of metal shoved up my thigh. Driving out to the store or driving out to get my kid, there's a non-zero chance that I'm going to get in a car accident that's going to kill me. There, there, Everything you do in every minute of every day has an associated risk. There is nothing, including Wi-Fi exposure, that is zero risk. However, Wi-Fi, 4G, 5G, radio, FM radio, AM radio, has such a minute risk percentage, well over the order of one in a million chances of any kind of biological effect at all, that there, there's really no reason to concern yourself with this level of risk. Okay, okay, but I got to ask, Mike. I, I, I suppose that I've seen United Nations reports saying that there's a non-zero risk that these radio waves might be harmful. Suppose that I've, I've read websites telling me that 
that these things are dangerous and that they're just not studied deeply enough or that we haven't been studying the right things. Suppose, suppose that I have all this information surrounding me telling me that these things are frying my insides and I'm going to get cancer. Okay. I'm going to get brain cancer because I'm answering calls on my iPhone. Well, who, who, are, who are you, Mike Worthley, to tell me that I'm wrong? <laughs> who are you to tell me that all of these things are wrong, Mike? Well, here's the situation. What's, what's your ba- how do you know? My what's background your background? is in exposure control, and I have I, I and I have a large deal of formal education, courtesy U.S. Navy, and that on both ionizing and non-ionizing radiation, like radio frequency. And coupled with that, that this is something that since I got a Wi-Fi router with the Wi-Fi router, excuse me, with the original airport, it's something that I've been keeping on top of since I got out of the service. So, so how many years were you in the service receiving that education from the U.S. Navy? The education itself was two years with active use on the submarine for five years, and I was a radiological control shift supervisor at the Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard for a very brief period of time. My literal job was exposure control. So you might know a thing or two about just, this. Just a couple. I, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a doctorate in this. So there are people that know more than I do about this. But 100% of everything about exposure to anything is about dose rate and couple that with time, distance, and shielding. Now, time. Let's just assume for the sake of argument there's not much we can do about time given radio frequency exposure. The cables in your walls, you get radio frequency exposure. You get radio frequency exposure from AC to DC adapters, from this headset that I'm wearing on my head that has a wire to it, it is a non-zero amount of radio frequency exposure. This microphone in front of my face, your monitor, your computer, solar sources, FM radio, AM radio, you name it. You're being exposed to radio frequency all the time. So let's leave time out of the equation for right now. Distance. There's this thing called the inverse square law, which means as as you move yourself from the source, the the magnitude drops inversely proportional to the amount of distance you are from it. So, so what you're saying is if I put a, a giant radio emitter next to my head, that's bad. I'm getting more exposure than if I stand 10 feet away from it. Yeah, actually, if you take a measurement at a foot, if you say that I'm getting four whatevers for whatever you're measuring, for whatever kind of radiation you're measuring, be it RF or ionizing radiation, I'm getting four whatevers at one foot. At two feet, that distance is, that the exposure you're getting, excuse me, is one-fourth of what you got at one foot, and and so forth, out to infinity, where the effective, the effective exposure is zero. So we're talking, what happens is I write this article that says that you shouldn't worry about Wi-Fi radiation, and people are saying, well, you're saying that it's safe. No. What I'm saying is, and what I have said in the last four paragraphs of the article, is that nothing has zero risk. And people are giving me thousands and thousands and thousands of links and comments about this thing. And number one, you can dismiss some of them because they're based on single-celled life. And we are not single-celled life. We are not single-celled life. We have a better immune system. Well, I mean, my brain is, but I don't know about you. (laughs) We have a better immune system, and we have skin, which is an amazing shield. It's the biggest organ I got. We get other sources that that are circular reference each other, that point to each other for proof, and there's no patient zero in that case. You have other sources that say, well, it had this effect on this biological organism that's mammalian enough to be a a rough human analog, but it's not universal. We're not getting observable biological effects Mm -hmm. across the board to say, no, we shouldn't have this technology. We shouldn't allow this technology. So what people are saying is, well, Wi-Fi isn't safe because this report says so. No. What this report says is that there is some risk associated with RF. But let's put it in comparison. Let's say that you're exposed to a high level that is considered safe. Safe. Okay? I'm not talking about the legal limits. The legal limits for occupational workers are one-tenth of the safe limit. 
And for the general public, it is one one hundredth of that limit. Okay. So let's go with the higher number that's considered. Wait, but is, is, are those limits taking into account time exposure? Because if you're an employee in, a, in an occupation, they expect you're going to have longer time. Uh, kind of I'm not, you know, I'm not going to delve into two years and college education. This on the podcast, the the one tenth and one one hundredth can be considered. It depends on the type of radiation you're talking about. But in general, we can abstract that to be both lifetime exposure and exposure rate, because those are two okay. different things. Now, to to, minimum, to to keep the math simple on this, you have roughly, at these safe rates, okay, you have roughly a one in one million chance of some kind of biological effect, ranging from an itchy spot all the way to death. One in a million. You know what's similar to those odds over your entire life? Being hit by a meteor and dying. Not being grazed by a meteor, being hit and being killed. You are 10 times more likely than that to be killed by lightning. You are 15 times more likely than that to be killed by a tornado or a hurricane. Do you have a basement? Your lifetime exposure in your basement is 10 times more likely to, to give you some kind of biological effect from the off-gassing of radon and the radioactive decay of the radon. So what are we talking about safety here? What, what's your, what are you calling safe and what are you not calling safe? Mm-hmm. If you don't like the one in a million number, that's fine. Take some steps. Do the time distance shielding like I talked about. Use a Bluetooth headset, which, by the way, also has RF. Or use your speaker. Well, so at CES a couple of years ago, I saw a pair of headphones that used, in, instead of putting the speaker drivers in your ear, put the speaker drivers down in the, the middle of the headset where they, they split off in a Y for left and right. And then they had hollow tubes that ran up to your ears okay. so that you were separated by distance from the emitters. Okay. People, people are terrible at assessing risk. When you say you have a one in a million chance of something biological happening to you because of your coffee, say. Right, but I wait. I, I I do want to point out the death by meteorite has happened. Sure, of course it's happened. February eighth, two thousand sixteen. Yeah, of course it's happened. Actually, no, February sixth. I'm sorry, February sixth. Tamil Nadu, a student in in uh, a young man was killed on his college campus in India. Sure. So it has it, happened. Of course it's happened. But only once in recorded human history that we know. Of. I I, bl- I believe I did a quick check and it was four or five times over the last hundred years. Okay. But still, one in a million? What What's dangerous to you? Yeah. You're like one in 80 chance of you dying from a car accident over your over your life. One in 80. I have a higher risk being on this podcast with you. So this is... <laughs> when, when you tell somebody you have a one in one million chance of something bad happening to you, and you say, oh, well, that's too dangerous, that's unacceptable. But then you go out and buy a lottery ticket for a, for a one in 65 million chance because you think you're going to win? I'm probably more at health risk from keeping up a really, really hot laptop on my lap than I am from the radio frequencies. So, you know what? Here's the thing. You can take difference with this with me if you want. But through the entire five pages of forum comments, no one is able to refute the last four sentences of the article, which talks about risk and risk assessment. No one has done it. Nobody. And you can't. You can't. Leave it to our readers to take that challenge up. But our listeners are, are intelligent, and I know that they're going to take this with with the well-reasoned approach that you have. Change my mind. There you go. Change my mind. Give me a scientific source that gives me a greater risk than one in a million. Don't give me a scientific source that says more studies required, because of course more studies required. Science, there is always more study required. Yeah, science doesn't reject having more studies. Give. Generally. I don't reject having more studies. When science changes its mind, so will I. Yep. And science has not. None of these links that people are giving me has not. And seriously, you know, if you're going to quote a quack doctor to me that is going to tell you to buy their infrared lamp because it has heat, because 
causes health benefits for you or pushes supplements on you that have no observable benefit and the FDA has cracked down on you, yeah, why don't you but try something else? supplements have the memory of water, Mike. Try something else. Yeah. How do you feel about the millimeter wave stuff at the airports? The millimeter wave stuff is an interesting case study because there is discussion that it could alter things on the DNA level. And that was also brought up here in the forum threads. But the problem is when you don't have any biological effects, what are you basing it on? I understand that people are talking about, well, there may be, there may be millimeter wave issues with, with DNA rewriting and encoding problems. But what we're debating is a point between point A and point Z. And point Z is biological effects. If there are no biological effects because of the millimeter wave exposure, then why are we even considering it? And here's the thing. With mil- there in, in wide-spectrum radio frequency broadcasts, there are millimeter waves embedded from solar sources. And if there is biological effects, why have we not seen them yet? Or we're already experiencing them, and it's our normal. Or, or we're already experiencing them, and they're included in existing cancer risks. Yeah. So... Let's keep doing, you know what, this, nothing I have said has said, let's stop doing the science. Nothing I have said has said that. Everything I've said is, is show me where the risk is increased. Show me where the risk is as unacceptable as driving a car every day to where you have to go and living with that one in 80. And, you know, that's perfect that you mentioned driving a car, because I want to talk briefly about Apple's adventures in driving a car. Okay. We've been following this for a couple of years now. They have 50-some electric driving vehicles on the road licensed in California. And we, we thought they were partnering with BMW. That didn't work. We thought they were partnering with Mercedes-Benz. That didn't go anywhere either. It just couldn't get off the starting line. But it appears that Apple has a self-driving shuttle project using Volkswagen transporter vans. Yeah, and that's good. It's glad that that the auto industry has decided that Apple's not completely the enemy here because they sure as heck did with CarPlay. Well, CarPlay has caught on. It's taken some it time. forever. Honda, Volkswagen, um, really Toyota was among the last. Everyone else kind of picked up on yeah, it. Yeah, but it still took way longer than it needed to. You're, Apple for sure. What you have to remember, what you have to remember is that in the auto industry, product cycles are not nine months. Product cycles are not 18 months. Product cycles are 10 years. And so as far as the auto industry is concerned, they adopted this sucker immediately. Well, as far as they're concerned. But it, it's – the thing is, is in the interim, they came up with competing standards because they didn't want Apple in their cars. Well, it's, it's not that they didn't want Apple in their cars. It's that they didn't want to lose control. Right. Which is slightly different because Google was also competing for this. And the, the end result, the good result is that you'd get Android Auto and CarPlay integrated into the same head unit and just connect your phone. You get which one's correct for your phone. The they, they really didn't want to give up control over that because it meant giving up control over the interface. And giving up control over the interface means giving up control over the experience. Giving up control over the experience means giving up that thing that makes your car unique. You know, whether it's the the burl wood on the dashboard or the quality of the fine Corinthian leather in the seating. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's that seating control that is is anathema. So yeah, we got Volkswagen vans driving people around Palo Alto. Yeah, and that's good. It's I have always I've said from the beginning with the when the whole Project Titan thing came out that Apple really wasn't that interested in a whole car, and I've said that here too. They they are interested in the electronics of the car and where that where that ends is to be determined. Right. And my my proposition has always been that Apple knows that they can partner with other things for other other products. But that historically, it, the the real end game is Apple says no one else does quality like we do and gives up and builds their own. Right. You know that's that's what's happened in a number of cases along the way. 
And occasionally the reverse happens when Apple decides, you know what, it's just not worth for us to build monitors anymore. And then they work with someone else to sell their monitor. Yep. Also not without its own troubles. Well, that is the time that we have for this segment. Coming up next is the interview with Sunny View, and I hope you'll stick around for it. It's going to be a great one. Well, great to meet you, Victor. Yeah, great, great to have you here, Sunny. So, Sunny, this is the Apple Insider Podcast, and our, our listeners may know a little bit about some of your past products. You know, we, we've talked on both the podcast and on our website about the Misfit line of products, going back to the, the Shine, the Speedo Shine, the Shine 2, and... Um, you know, some of those earliest kind of products. I think I've got a couple of Misfit Bolts around as well. No, oh, great. So It's been a while. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, for, first of all, the background of this whole wearable space for you. Sure thing. Yeah, we, um, you know, we kind of saw how this space was, this burgeoning space. Uh, back in, I guess, in the 2011s, we were looking to do our next startup. And uh, we it just smelled like something that'd be growing in the coming year. So we jumped head in, uh, started Misfit and, uh, uh, pushed really hard. I mean, it was just hard. There was a lot of competition at the time and it, it never decreased really. And, uh, before we knew it, we were, we had an acquisition offer, uh, and we joined a great company, uh, Fossil Group. I was there for, uh, a little over two years and I left, uh, at the end of uh, February. That's that's a very abbreviated version because it feels like the the time from when Misfit first started appearing in the press and started making uh, getting on my radar to the time of that acquisition was was years four or five years it feels like yeah yeah uh, from start to finish was about three and a half years four years uh, doing Misfit it was a um, it was a good run you know we we kind of felt uh, at the time this is back in two thousand eleven two thousand twelve. When we looked at the space, it just looked like a space that um, it's really just. I mean, it, it, it you know Fitbit had been around for a number of years, um, but when you looked at the space at the time, it was uh, the big opening we felt at the time was that fashion and technology. You know, making stuff, making you look good while you're trying to look good, uh, wearing these things, and that was kind of our focus. Um, I think it worked for the most part. Um, and then the space has really blossomed, you know, now, uh, smartwatches, uh, it's a whole category now. It's not even like a novelty anymore. Definitely. Can I, can I take a small diversion and just ask, um, you know, obviously some of my listeners are, are focused on Apple history and things like that. So you can tell me a little bit about, uh, how John Scully got involved with Misfit. Can I ask you to speak to that? For oh, just yeah. A second? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's really serendipity. Uh, Providence, whatever you want to call it. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, was having, uh, dinner, uh, was hosting dinner for John. And, um, uh, he said, Hey, you want to come down to having John dinner with John Scully? And I was like, heck yeah, man. So I flew down to Florida. We had dinner. And at the time, you know, there's only one reason why you'd have dinner with uh, John Scully. And that would be to peg him with uh, Steve Jobs questions. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but, uh, and that's what I did. And he just was incredibly gracious, you know, all my annoying questions about Steve Jobs. And he was just sat there and answered them and was just really cool about it. And I said, you know, I really like this guy. I can't believe he put up with me for like two hours. He must, uh, there must be more to this man than what the, you know, various versions of history. And we just became friends. And before I knew it, I, I said, hey, you know what? You want to start a company? And he said, yes. I was like, wow, okay. Uh, he's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to start a company with you. <laughs> so, and then I said, uh, 
how about wearables? He's like, sure, I love wearables. And before you knew it, and so, uh, so him and Sridhar were non-operating founders, you know, so they, you know, they weren't day to day. Um, but he was kind of a spiritual guide and, um, and he, and he was just a, a really uh, great uh, mentor, really. He still is. Good. Th- thank you for letting me ask that. It's one of those kinds of things where I'd, I'd sort of, j- just as you were asking Steve Jobs questions, I wanted to go ahead and get my John Scully question in. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, he's, I mean, he's, he's amazing. I mean, he's, you know, in the 70s, and he's as active and as passionate about stuff as ever. And his great, I mean, one of the things that he always, that I guess him and his compatriots, his friends always try to do is every 10 years, uh, reinvent themselves, you know, and in these 10 years, he's focused on healthcare and he's just really doing some amazing work there. And so, uh, really quite an amazing, uh, mentor. Good. I, I, I like, especially the story of just, you want to start a company? Sure. What do you want to make? I have no idea. Let's just start a company. That's, that's feels like the kind of liberating and creative kind of situation that really leads to, to fun things. We should have more of that. So tell me about what is, what is this fun thing you're working on now? So, um, uh, my close friends uh, who know me know that I've always had a thing for semiconductors, semiconductor physics, chips, and um, I don't know, maybe I'm more of a poser than anything because I'm not an expert in this space. You know, when I did my worked on my PhD at MIT, it was in a completely different field, you know, computational linguistics. And this is back when that kind of stuff didn't work. You know, AI was not a popular topic. Uh, in the mid and late nineties. But, uh, I always knew that, uh, you know, as we were designing hardware for various companies, you know, two companies ago, uh, well, three companies ago, we did, uh, blood glucose meters and strips for, uh, people with diabetes. Then we did wearables and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, involved in a, an IOT a company called Elemental Machines. And in all of these companies, hardware development is just, a, it moves at a snail's pace. And uh, it just feels like hardware engineering is done in such a, it's still in such an archaic way. Uh, and so when I first heard about this, when Ming was telling me about um, Zip and Zglue and what they do, I, I thought, okay, this is totally the way hardware should be done. So the analogy I make, and I, I came up with this. This wasn't like a part of a cheat sheet or anything. And I and I asked if this was right, and he said that absolutely. Is you know, software has kind of had this revolution where, you know, back in the Stone Age, we were writing machine language and then assembly code, and then we had programs, computers write code for us, uh, called you know compilers, so we could write at a higher level, higher language, higher levels of language, right? Interpreted code and. Exactly, interpreted code, exactly. And then over time, and then now, and it's only gotten more and more powerful as, uh, in successive decades, you know? Now, I mean, you can write, you know, machine learning, co- you know, high school kids can write mach- uh, machine learning, uh, learning, le- uh, programs, which PhD, uh, students would have a hard time doing even just 10 years ago, right? So, um, and that's kind of what I- I've been kind of waiting for something like this to happen for hardware. You know, where is the compiler equivalent for hardware? And I think that's, that's kind of how I understand what Zglue does and, uh, with the zip platform and the Z origin product, this, uh, wearable design, it's really a reference design kind of in, instantiation of the zip platform. Um, because it basically enables you to build your own chip, uh, in a massively accelerated fashion because computers are doing the layout, computers are doing the chip selection, computers are doing, um, the infrastructure software to make the chips work. 
and um, you know, so instead of taking like a year to build your own uh, system on a chip, or however long it would normally take, it, it's probably around that time. Now you can do it in a matter of weeks. Which when I first heard about it, it seemed a little unbelievable. Yeah, how does that work? So I kind of issued. <laughs> well, I, I kind of just issued a challenge. I'm like, great, well, make me one. And so he did. He came back in a few weeks later and said, "How about this?" I was like, you can't, there's no way you just started it. And he's like, yep. And so, and he showed me and that's what the Z origin is. It's, it's literally, I, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a basic, uh, uh, wearable device, you know, with sensors and computation, memory, data transfer, just the basic stuff you'd need for a wearable or an IOT device. And they literally did it in a matter of weeks and which kind of blew me away. So I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this a little bit. Are, when, when you say make your own system on chip, are you just picking the kinds of inputs and outputs that you you want on this thing and it's determining the rest and pasting the glue together to make that happen? And then you got it. You got it. That's pretty much it. I mean, you put in the requirements, power, memory, GPIO, uh, sen- right. Sensors, you know, uh, data transfer rates and range and all that stuff. And then because of its database of, uh, chips, you know, which, you know, you can get from data sheets from, uh, from various companies, you, um, it'll automatically suggest the components that you'd need and its algorithms will actually automatically solve the rectangular packing problem and basically pack it more tightly than I think any human could because it finds the optimal packing. And so it can actually make the hardware smaller. Well, first of all, it does it really fast because it's a computer, right? And it just finds right. the optimal searching chip, the databases chips, and chipset. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, this is totally the way hardware should be done, right? Like, uh, I mean, if you have some person and he or she just says, "Hmm, you know, you want to do that? Okay, how about this chip? How about that chip from such and such vendor and that chip? Oh, that chip will work well. Oh, you know, this other guy he, he brought in the cookies the other day and when he was presenting the uh, those memory chips. Maybe we'll use those." I mean, that just seems so random, you know, and it becomes, you're reducing art like a, I don't know, it seems like a black art into a science. And I mean, that's, I mean, I, I don't really get involved in that many companies, right? And, but this is, I, mean, I thought this was, I thought this was pretty profound. Part, part of selection <laughs> you know, is, is usually based on like the personal relationship. Like you said, the guy who brought in the cookies when he did the sales presentation, um, parts availability, I mean, for, you know, for can you ex- reserve it when you go and, to production and, kind of thing? And, and, and human, me- and human memory. Yes. I mean, you, you can only remember so many chips and, uh, and so an experienced hardware engineer will be very good at that. But again, that's just, you're subjecting yourself to human limitations. Oh, totally. And, and so we've basically just automated that part of the electrical engineer's design role. Exactly. So the thing is, so chip selection, chip placement and packing is kind of one thing but then there's also software infrastructure needed to kind of make all the connects work yeah you have to have firmware on top of this thing power management work and make make everything sync radio management the whole thing you got it you got it so that's so that's the other part of the zip platform which i think is uh is pretty cool because that that would because you wouldn't otherwise be able to do something like this. I mean, the idea is interesting, but when you get to implementing this dream of basically building the compiler for hardware, uh, there's a lot of challenges to overcome. Well, yeah, because if you're using a, a system on chip, there's generally a reference design and there's firmware that, that you get with the chip that you can then use and adapt to your needs. So here, if you're building your own, you have to start over, basically. Exactly. And, exactly. I mean, and, and if you think about the 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 
endeavor of doing a system on a chip. It's not for the faint of heart. It's like you need a hardcore team of hardware, firmware, semiconductor physics expert. You know, you, you yeah, need it's nuts. a serious <laughs> team. It's not, it's not a, I mean, the, the thing that kind of blew me away when Ming's like, Hey, why don't we launch at Maker Fair? I'm like, you gotta be kidding. Maker Fair is like, uh, you know, people are like, ha- you know, have like bad 3D printers and wires and weird trinkets. Exactly. You know, and Arduino, like, and you want to do a system on a chip? And he, and, uh, he said, yeah, I'm like, so it's, and then, you know, it's, and it's actually that accessible that they would actually launch at Maker Fair. You know, they're not launching at like, uh, I don't know I, what, I, I don't even know the semiconductor space, you know, they're not launching at some semiconductor technical conference, you know? Uh, with big Qualcomm booths and whatever, they're launching at Maker Fair. Yeah, that's that's kind of nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, make, Maker Fair is wireless suppliers yeah. and Raspberry Pi and, and Arduino, and like you say, bad 3D printers. And so you've got a system on chip that's accessible for, for those kinds of people to wrap their head around and try and use to develop something. And beyond that step of just taking whatever you're offering them and, and being able to develop against it, it's build your own system on chip to adapt to your needs, which is... Right, mind-boggling it, that that would be available to to home hobbyists, basically. Exactly. Well, and the thing is, if you think about as we get into this, as the space of wearables and more, and probably more likely IoT devices and connected hardware explodes, um, the need for something like this becomes very obvious. Because, I mean, if you're making iPhones or some smartphone or whatever, you know, you're gonna have big teams building highly optimized chips and you know like everything's like super engineered because you're going to make a zillion of the, of each unit right? right so um okay so that's fine and i i think they could use this kind of work too because you know anyone could use computers to help solve well, your problems it's, it's right? fast prototyping at the very least yeah. right you know if you're trying to I, 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 concept I, something and you can spin one up quickly that right. makes a huge but, difference yeah so uh, exactly and i think aside from those giant phone makers and tablet makers and whatever, right? What about the other tens and tens of thousands of hardware companies building various IoT devices, whether they're vertical specific or for, or even enterprise products, you know, products that are made just for a company uh, for their, uh, for their use, right? Um, there's no way such teams can afford to make a system on a chip. They might use someone else's system on a chip, but to make their own, it just wouldn't normally be uh, economical, or, or I mean, you wouldn't even have the resources to pull off. Yeah, they're they're buying like off the off. shelf from some yeah. other vendor, and it's all component. And as a result, you're you're limited in terms of performance, power, size, right? capabilities, um, and probably and probably cost. Yeah, and definitely. Yeah, and overall capabilities exactly. So, uh, so it makes sense that you'd have a tool like this. So, and it almost, in a sense, equalizes the playing field because now the rest of us can build. Can have our own chips, and is it more cost effective? Is it? I mean, it's, it's certainly uh, more cost effective than trying to to go to a fab and have a fab produce a million system on chips for one product kind of thing. But uh, for the home uh, hobbyist, uh, is it practical? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because if you think about it, the engine. I mean, just looking at development cost, right? I mean, first of all, the home hobbyist would never wouldn't be able to afford. Yeah, it was never you know, a full fledged system on a chip engineering team, right? Okay, so you couldn't even think about that. Um, but now you can because it's 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 computers doing this work, right? Uh, now, in terms of the individual unit costs, well, you know, it's going to depend on the application, obviously, but 
uh, it can, but the thing is, you can optimize this to say, look, I want, I'm optimizing for low cost, not performance, or I'm optimizing for low cost, not, not size or whatever, right? And so it's a parameter that you can tweak. Right. You've, you've got the capabilities, you've got size, you've got performance, you've got cost, and you just adjust the sliders on all of those until you get the mix you want, basically. Right. Okay. More or less. More or less. Oversimplification, but I'm just trying to, trying to help wrap my head around it and help wrap my listeners' heads around it because it's just, mm -hmm. it's an interesting idea that, that has never really been available to people before, I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's almost a necessity, you know, because, um, how long are we going to do components and breadboards and respin? Oh, we made a mistake, respin again. You know, like even, I mean, that's the other thing is mistakes, right? You, you know, it's, when you're doing semiconductors and, you know, and hardware, um, mistakes are expensive. I mean, like that, just eliminating the, the errors because you can basically solve at a software level. Uh, I think the, that's, that's pretty tremendous. So I have, I have a dumb question here. We were talking about using the computer to optimize package layout and, and solving rectangular problems within the system on chip. Um, can it also solve board layout? Um, the uh, board layout, you mean outside the outside chip? Outside the it's, chip it's itself, this is really, all the other components yeah. and screens that have to go alongside things. You know, maybe in a future version, the focus really is on getting you uh, your, your, your chip. And the idea is with a system on a chip is there's a lot of uh, functionality, you know, because, but it's really, you know, the focus really is on the core functionalities, you know, sensors, uh, processor, data transfer, memory, that kind of thing. Right. I was just thinking, you know, if we're talking about ways to, to help people move faster and maybe overcome, mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I have a lack of electrical engineering knowledge and I have, I have a basic mm -hmm. hand handling of it, um, having something that could also solve the board layout for me for cost efficiency kind well, of thing becomes a huge thing because now you've got a, a, a system where you can say, here's my chip with all the requirements that it has. Here's the board with the mechanical restraints. It's got to fit this mm -hmm. kind of size and enclosure and it, it solves all of those problems. And I can go and get the whole thing made. And, and you know, there's a, um, you know, there is a lot of board layout software right. already out sure. there. Um, this is really at a chip level and, uh, you know, it's, I mean, the, the thing is I want that, you know, I, I do, I, I want to be clear about is that the Zglue platform isn't to replace hardware engineers. It's to massively accelerate and make them more effective. Well, yeah, it, 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 instead of having to remember the data sheets for the best chips or remembering a, sh a short list of chips that were or go-tos, you really get what you want here. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Augmenting the electrical engineer's abilities like that. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Well, I apologize for asking about board layout. It wouldn't be the first time I've asked about a solved problem. <laughs> it's it's not a solved problem. I think there's a lot of uh, advances that still need to be done. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I see looks seems pretty archaic, you know. So I'm sure there's uh, there's plenty of room for innovation there. So what? What do you think the application is for the system on chip work immediately? What what do you hope to see people build with it, or what are you planning to build with it? So I think um, you know I'm out of the wearables world now. That's not my business anymore. You know, it's it's not so much a been there done that kind of thing, but it's uh, I think there's a lot of other important problems to solve as well. Uh, the first reference design happens to be a wearable design, which is pretty cool. It's very easy to understand for. A, uh, for a maker, 
uh, originally one idea was to make an IoT device, but a lot of it's hard to wrap around your head around IoT a lot of times because it seems like this kind of nebulous. very nebulous concept. Yeah, I mean, because it can, it's basically any little thing that's connected or anything that's connected, right? Um, but to that end, I think uh, one of the most exciting things you can do are to enable this plurality of possible IoT devices because. You know, a wearable, you know, you're going to have sensors, data transfer, and computation and display. Okay, that's that's it. But IoT, I mean, that's, I mean, you're sensing, you're actuating, you're, there's all sorts of things you can be doing. And so that's where something like this will shine um, is, uh, you know, because of, because of the plurality of product categories in the IoT space. So I think that's where it's going to be the most interesting. Very cool. Well, uh, how, how should people learn more about this? Where would you direct our, our listeners to go to hear more about it? Yeah, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, Zillow's uh, got a booth at Maker Faire, and uh, I'm going to be there on Friday afternoon to answer questions. So, you know, if people happen to be in the Bay Area, come on down. It's in San Mateo. It should be a lot of fun. Plus, there's tons of just cool stuff at Maker Faire, if, uh, if you've ever been. the um, And obviously, there's the, the website, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, should, but, I uh, should mention, we're recording yeah. this um before Maker Fair, but I think I'm going to not air. Yeah, so due to the embargo that we have with with Miriam, um, hmm. I she she wants to make sure that I don't publish it before the Maker Fair, before the time happens, and so it's not going to make tomorrow's episode. I'm going to have to release it next week, so Maker Fair will have already oh, happened okay. by that point. Ah, uh, okay, okay, got it. Um, a great place to find out more about the company, obviously, is uh, is on the website zglue.com. Um, so there's uh, plenty of information there. Um, you know, the company's open for business. There's, uh, the, they're, 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 they're ready to go. Cool. And, and who, who should look at this? You know, should, should the home hobbyists be looking at this? Should people who are trying to make their products for a Kickstarter launch kind of thing be looking at this? Where, who, who's your ideal target to start exploring? Um, you know, it's, uh, th- there's, there's a, it's a pretty wide, I mean, I would say anyone who is interested in making connected hardware um, or just hardware in general, whether you're doing a uh, Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign or you're at a company already and you're looking to build the next generation of products and you want to be able to build it quickly and iterate quickly. This is, I think, probably the best solution out there um, because the iteration speed, the iteration cycles, the experimentation cycles you uh you know you might be able to do it in a, in a matter of weeks for software but when it comes to hardware i think unless you're using a, a platform like this i don't think you can get to that level of speed yeah hardware is always one of those things that just takes time traditionally yep absolutely and uh i think this is equalizing that uh playing field a little bit between software and hardware amazing well thank you so much i, I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with me about it absolutely that brings us to the end of a very excellent episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. And I'm so glad all of you listeners were out there joining us for it. You know, I really appreciate it when you do. And uh, Mike, Mike Worthley. That's me. Mike, who's going to protect himself from radio waves with a diamond-encrusted iPhone ten. Where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> well, without a diamond-encrusted iPhone ten, you can find me on Apple Insider, well, frankly, just about every day. And you can find me every Monday morning with my own salty podcast, which I expect is going to delve into the radio frequency story a slightly more foul language way, on at spacejavelin.com. And, and I'm Victor. Skin is the largest organ on your human body. 
And you can find me on Twitter at vmarks. And please feel free to email us at news at appleinsider.com. And thank you so much for joining us. So long, everybody. We'll see you next week.